0: Comprise détresse, cher amoureux, et je cède à tes vœux, fais de moi ta maîtresse, loin de nous la sagesse. Welcome back to Unknown Warriors with me, Michael Baker. In my introduction to the first episode of this series, I described the Homecoming, a war memorial in Cambridge that exhibits the bronze figure of a victorious British Tommy. His head is turned to one side his gaze directed towards the station, looking back, if you like, at the war he's just returned from. In this final episode of the series, I want to explore that process of looking back, for memory and remembrance have played a key role in how the First World War has been interpreted by later generations. Memories change, of course, and change according to who is doing the remembering and when and memories are also invariably informed by present-day preoccupations rather than a search for historical truth. In other words, though we may set out history as a sequential narrative, we tend to think backwards from the present to the past. This can make the process of looking back a complex one, if also revealing. I spoke to Professor Mark Connolly of the University of Kent, who has written extensively about war, culture and society. Most recently, in a book he has co-authored about the Belgian town of Ypres, the site of at least three major battles during the First World War and a striking barometer of the way in which national memories of that war emerged and developed. I began by asking Mark how the popular view of the war in Britain has been shaped by this process of remembering. The fascinating thing to conceive of of the
1: memory of the Great War is that it was always a chorus of different voices. And some were, shall we say, highly celebratory about it. They were almost jingoistic about it. Others, of course, like the, the famous war poets, were often condemnatory. And I think what happened across the course of the 20th century was that we increasingly, certainly within Anglo-Saxon culture and and, and within the British Isles, we increasingly privileged smaller and smaller number of voices and we forgot that they were part of a chorus. You know, there were always alternative um, ways of thinking about the the Great War. Some people were actually contradictory. I mean, even someone as great as Siegfried Sassoon, you know, admitting the Second World War, well, you know, I think there probably is something wrong with, with the German mass mentality, not perhaps with individual Germans, but there is something that's wrong with them, and perhaps they do need fighting, you know, and we tend to forget that bit about Sassoon um, because we only want one voice to come out. It's a simplified, narrowed-down, kind of idiot's guide to the war rather than the rich complexity of the tapestry in the 20s and 30s.
0: It's worth pointing out that the so-called war poets, whose angry view still dominates the popular narrative of the First World War in Britain, were wholly unrepresentative either of British Tommies or most British writers of the time. But it was also the misfortune of the First World War to be followed a mere 20 years later by an even greater global conflict.
1: Until 1945, Kaiser Bill looks still a swine. You know, he he did some pretty despicable things. The German occupation of Belgium looks pretty nasty. Of course... After 1945, and once the horror of concentration camps and genocide comes out, then Willow Germany actually begins to look more like pantomime buffoonery. At worst, it was misguided, and so the unfair comparison um, really starts to um, affect the way people conceive of the war.
0: The Second World War could also trump the first in terms of heroics. Britain in particular, with its blitz spirit and solitary defiance in 1940, could stand proud among the victorious allies who had rid the world of Hitler. By the same token, the Western Front suffered badly from comparison with the major battlefronts of the Second World War. The Somme, an advance of a mere seven miles over five months, at a cost of 420,000 British Empire casualties, looked decidedly unheroic, not to say incompetent and callous, when compared to the decisive and far less costly breakthroughs of El Alamein or D-Day. So all those Western Front battle sites of the earlier war, remembered for their glorious self-sacrifice in the post-1918 years, began to seem, after 1945, decidedly less positive or meaningful.
1: What the Second World War etches onto them is a sense of military bungle and stupidity, because so many of them are fought over twice, but within a day or so. So in 1940, you know, the Somme and Ypres battlefields, boom. The British Army has gone westwards; it's it's disappeared off of them. In 1944, when they, you know, got the the, the bit between their teeth, the same is true. They get up to the old Western Front line, the Guards Armoured Division straight across the Somme in a day. Ypres taken really quickly. So, in its own way, that these sites of of First World War hallowed memory, the sheer speed of military operations over them in 1940 and 44, 45 will add to a later sense of, well, what the hell were they doing in those four years then? Just how badly were those men led? You know, so somewhere that you can skip over in a day took four years of fighting. What was that all about? And, and of course, what, what no one likes to really talk about. If you think of everyone's image of D-Day, it, it's that difference, isn't it, between what we might call academic history with a hard age and indeed what memory studies would do. We weirdly telescope time in our memory about D-Day. There's D-Day and there's the breakout, almost as if they happen one after another. A few people who've got a little bit more military history savvy might know about things like the fighting for car, about Operation Goodwood and Epsom and all the rest. they might know that it was a bit of a slugging match, but there's still a sense in which the flash to bang is very, very quick. You know, and There's no sense of Normandy being A battle for the British and Americans that's really quite Great War-ish at times. No one conceives of it. It strikes me really deeply in those terms and what that means in terms of the loss of human life, what's going on there. If we we kind of think of a a, a sort of collective photograph gallery, you might say, of, of the British second world war particularly from d-day onwards it strikes me it's those wonderful photographs of the soldiers coming ashore and then the next ones are of de Gaulle walking down the Champs-Élysées of British soldiers in Brussels. There is joy, there is celebration, there is obvious victory and so we don't draw those comparisons enough you know the hard military history comparisons.
0: The agonized popular British view of the first world war is really unparalleled among the nations which fought the conflict, certainly among the victors. What explains this preoccupation with what is essentially a literary construct of the war?
1: I think it's a lot to do with island status. You know, It's famously said, isn't it, that Britain doesn't have a major war from Waterloo. We? we all know that Britain has tonnes and tonnes of wars in the 19th century, they just don't happen anywhere near home. The nations of continental Europe understood wars and what they meant on their very soil in a way that Britain escaped, certainly escaped for much of the 19th century. So 1914 begins in retrospect to seem like a cataclysmic shock because of the sheer scale of warfare and what it demands. Anyone that lived in France or what becomes Germany in 1871 had got a, a big sniff of this earlier on. Austrians had sensed it in their wars against Prussia, you know Italians had been through this in the 1850s and 60s, their wars of unification which have been incredibly destructive on their doorstep. So I think it, it left Britain in a slightly weird sense of splendid isolation about what war actually means. So it meant the Great War was always going to stand out as the Great War and wasn't going to become part of a continuum of, of miseries and struggles, which it is for a lot of continental nations.
0: Nowhere is this unique British memory of the First World War better illustrated than by the way in which the Belgian town of Ypres, known to the Tommies as Wipers, came to be memorialised by Britain after the war ended. The town lay barely 70 miles from the British mainland, therefore the defence of the Ypres salient, the gateway to the channel ports, was a pivotal part of British strategy on the Western Front, sustained at a huge cost in casualties. This combination of military expedience and self-sacrifice would provide a potent narrative after the war that would in due course find validation in the almost 170 Allied cemeteries which would be built in and around the salient three to every square mile while Ypres itself would, in 1927, acquire the Menin Gate, an imposing memorial to almost 55,000 of the missing, built at the head of the Menin Road, along which countless men had marched on their way to the front line.
1: Ypres is really important for actually something we've completely lost sight of today. Britain was uh, an imperial nation. There was an imperial Britannic world out there, a Greater Britain, and there was one battlefield alone, really, which brought all of Greater Britain together, and that was Epe. You know, five great battles in total, although you know we kind of only really think about three, but five battles fought around um, Epe during the course of that five years. Every aspect of the British Empire has fought. There and and, and lost men, often lost thousands of missing. So it means that throughout the war, Ypres is at the forefront of uh, a kind of pan imperial war reportage. And reversely, because Britain is the doorstep you know, to the whole thing, because Ypres was the doormat, as it were, to the doorstep of Britain, if Ypres falls, you know, Britain is in danger. The way it is open to the Channel Ports. So more than any of those um, great battlefields, Ypres is the one that the whole empire can share a stake in. And I think we've kind of lost some of those in pan-imperial aspects over the years.
0: At the war's end, Britain was quick to claim Ypres as a sacred site of memory, with Churchill and others even proposing that the town's ruins should be left untouched as a permanent memorial. This never happened, but there was soon an empire-wide British-run Ypres League, and the town rapidly attracted a sizeable and permanent community of expat British some providing services for visiting bereaved relatives or battlefield tourists, while others worked for the huge operation run by the Imperial War Graves Commission, whose cemetery and memorial building across France and Belgium became the biggest British construction project of the 1920s.
1: Most people who actually want to see a battlefield will come to Eat. Then, as now, it's the easiest place to visit. And they can do so and they can see trenches and they can see ruined tanks and they can have their photographs taken by it and by the same token, they can visit cemeteries so they can do the full emotional gamut they can be tourists and they can be pilgrim much of that though will end up shall we say with a fairly positive spin to it there will be a sense of everybody knows this war costs a huge amount no one is under any delusions as to how much it's cost in treasure and in lives what often a visit to Epe will underline for them though is that it was all worth it. It was a huge endeavour that was worth it because Belgian people are now back living in their villages, their lifestyle is, is slowly being restored, you know, that they, they can see the value of what um, British manhood had fought and suffered for. We've only got to think of, of Henry Beckles Wilson writing one of the first specialist guides to to the Western Front, which is called Holy Ground of British Arms. It's just the resonance of that Holy Ground of British Arms. The amount of times that the Menin Road is inferred that it's a Via Dolorosa. It is where the British soldier, or the Imperial soldier, imitating Christ, takes up his rifle and pack like his cross, and goes out to his glorious martyrdom. You see so often, uh, the term which I think Buchan coined, what Verdun is to the French, Ypres is to Britain, so it has all of those sacred elements of of the barrier, the gateway to the sanctity of hearth and home, and the anvil on which a a generation was tested, or the crucible in some ways, in which their molten blood poured out. The Christian overtones around Ypres and sacrifice are immense in the 20s
0: such a large all-pervading british presence in ypres did not always make for harmony with the locals especially as british attitudes rather belying their much vaunted wartime role as the liberators of belgium verged almost on the colonial
1: first of all the the british make it quite clear that, that in some ways that they're going to marginalize their allies The French may have done something in Ypres, but it was in 1914. It was all wrapped up by 1915. It wasn't really that important. And and the far north of the Salient, and that's where the Belgians were as well, um, up towards the coast. So the true Salient, the true Ypres battlefield, is ours and our empire. Because it's going to be us visiting, locals should conform, essentially, to what the British want. After all, it's the only battlefield that the British and to buy lock, stock, and barrel, you know, all the, the remains of the city mean, that, that Churchill famously in 1918 1919 is negotiating for. The Fabian Ware, the head of the Imperial War Graves Commission, was charged by Churchill to get on with this. You know, he's basically saying to Churchill, Let me get this right. Do you, know, you want us to buy the ruins of an entire city and you don't want us to let the locals back? Obviously, by, by sheer de facto reoccupation by local people, that plan out of the window but still that sense in the 20s and 30s that when you were in EPA, you could drink British beer you could smoke British tobacco you certainly drink British tea and in some ways I think we have to consider it you know a bit like our jokes now about certain Holiday resorts in Spain, you know, it's like an all-day English breakfast. Exactly the same thing was exported to Ypres in the 20s and 30s. Locals often adapted to it because it was good for making money, but if there was any kind of uh, moaning from them, they were pretty much told to shut up. It was nothing to do with them. Britain had won their freedoms and they should just be grateful for it.
0: If Ypres lay at the heart of British remembrance of the Western Front, it figured hardly at all in German memory. After 1918, few German cemeteries could be found in the salient, and those that did exist, comprising rows of black wooden crosses, were poorly looked after. But to the northeast of Ypres lay the village of Langemark, and this would generate a myth that was to have an enduring legacy in the German narrative of the Western Front. The story went that in October 1914, as the Germans engaged with the Allies at the First Battle of Ypres, a company of newly recruited young German soldiers went into battle singing the German national anthem, Deutschland, Deutschland, uber Some versions, rather implausibly, even had it that the soldiers linked arms as they sang. In the event, the attack was unsuccessful and many of these new recruits were killed. For the Germans here in
1: 1914, that final great gamble to try and make their initial war strategy work. Langemark allows them in, in, you might argue, quite an Anglo-Saxon way, to snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat. It's a spiritual victory. The young soldiers who had rushed to the colours in 1914, some of them you know, before their call up age, it allows the German press to um, portray them in much the same way, almost as the the, the British War portrayed its young men, you know, against seasoned Germans, that here was a generation of young German men, innocent to war, who were chucked in against the elite, the remaining elite, of the British and French armies. All those pre-war trained men who poured their firepower into them, but it was the one thing they couldn't break the unconquerable spirit of Germania and the fact that they died in the attempt and ultimately it wasn't successful isn't important it's the example that it set to the nation and that's hugely potent particularly for a Germany that it's high political and strategic levels by Christmas 1914 is it's always bankrupt you know how do we get out of this we never planned this what are we going to do now so the myth helps cover up a lot of behind the scenes political machinations where those young troops uh, that are allegedly attacked is, is in the area a bit further south it's, uh, and, and slightly further west, it's Big Bixurta. But Big Bixurta, of course, has nothing like the Germanic gravitas of Llanemark. It doesn't have a Germanic ring. Bixurta sounds dreadfully Flemish. Um, and, and the whole thing therefore lends itself to a propagandist's delight and is something that's recycled in 1920s and 1930s Germany, and is eventually hijacked by the Nazis.
0: In the 1920s, the Langemark myth, though largely debunked by serious German historians, proved highly popular among middle-class German youth, evoked as a holy memory that would rejuvenate the defeated nation. But it was only in the 1930s that Langemark acquired a physical location and so became more than simply an imagined site of heroism and self-sacrifice. The Treaty of
1: Versailles um, has very clear injunctions in it um, about um, German and enemy war cemeteries, that they should be respected. Most of that on the ground is ignored by local French and Belgian authorities and, and to a certain extent Weimar is in such confusion. It's got enough problems near a home. Looking after war cemeteries is way over um, the horizon for it. But by the late 1920s, you know, with the stabilisation of Weimar, the stabilisation of Germany, people are starting to ask questions about this. And then another legend associated with Weimar comes up, that German students attending the International Students Meeting in Paris, which was to have its last great um, plenary session in Versailles. And it was said that they really wanted to have it happen in the Hall of Mirrors, and this was a studied insult to German students. The German students are alleged to have walked out in high dudgeon and said instead what they would do is a pilgrimage of German cemeteries. and as part of this, they end up in a key one at Langermark, and it's in this terrible mess, and they um, commit themselves to a new cemetery. Funds are raised and by 1930-31, there's enough there to to begin work. It's completed in late 31, early 32. So just in time for it to be co-opted by the Nazis. And they immediately make the narrative one about what vengeful, petty, destructive, bourgeois, nasty little trading nations like Britain wanted to do to the soul of youthful Germany Um, and it's summed up here and that's why um, you know Langemark schools are set up across Germany um, and also there is the belief that it should become part of the daily language of Germany why there are so many Langemark bus stops in Germany you know because bus conductors shout out the stops and the idea was to embed it in the psyche.
0: Under the Nazis the Langemark legend was repeatedly invoked by Hitler and was co-opted by the Reich to suit its own propaganda purposes. A striking example of this was the Langemark Hall, an imposing structure built into the stadium for the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It created a solemn space where sporting prowess merged with military valour, and the Führer's visit to the Hall at the start of the Games was carefully choreographed for maximum effect
1: very rare that he kind of disappeared, but at this moment he did, he was alone and he disappeared into the Langemark Hall to commune, I mean again giving it that kind of Wagnerian sense of the Hall of Odin somehow, you know, to commune with the ghosts of the dead and to somehow imbibe them and know that he is the the lightning conductor, very much part of the opening ceremony propaganda, which it's not really played for outside nations because I don't think they get it, but certainly for German home consumption, you know, that,
0: that message is there. In June 1940, as the Germans rapidly occupied Belgium and France, Hitler made a well publicised visit to the cemetery at Langemark, transforming it into a site of victory. But after the German retreat in 1944, Langemark was never again invoked in Germany and the German cemeteries of the area once again fell into neglect. Ypres, too, from 1940, faded from British national consciousness, as the fall of France effectively shut down the Western Front. From 1945, the Somme, Gallipoli and Vimy Ridge replaced Ypres in preeminence, with Passchendaele, characterised as war at its most hellish, becoming the dominant example of the futility of the First World War. But the truth is, for all nations in Europe, the Second World War utterly transformed the landscape of memory and remembrance.
1: Everything is knocked into a cocked hat by the Second World War. Just as in some ways we find it relatively easy to disaggregate the two, For a lot of continental European peoples, they can't, and the First World War gets rolled into the Second, and the Second is the behemoth that swallows everything, because the Second World War creates the existential crisis for all of them. It rips them apart. Were we collaborators? Were we resistors? Were we on the right or wrong moral side? Did we do enough? Did we shout enough? Did we resist enough? And all of those big questions about what the soul of a nation is you know, were ripped open between 1939 and 1945. So it therefore means, was the way they conceive of an earlier conflict is very different. It either becomes the almost irrelevant curtain raiser. So many younger German people, it's almost as if, because they've had the Nazis drummed into them so much, you know, German history doesn't begin in 1870 or 7, it begins in 1933 you know, that's what they're still confronting, that's what they're still dealing with. And I think for a lot of French people in some ways, the conversation they have is June 1940, you know, that's really the problem that sticks up most. What happened before that, who knows what that's about. And, And so the Second World War, I think, just looms so large in such a particular way. And arguably, you could say that the whole Brexit thing here has shown how ignorant we are of that issue, of that difficulty for continental Europe. We just do not get it.
0: A major player in both world wars was Russia, but its reincarnation as a communist state in 1917 and its later history as the Soviet Union has given its memory of the First World War a very particular resonance that has no parallel in other combatant nations.
1: Again, what's Fascinating here is the fluidity of memory or the fluidity of remembrance and commemoration. It, it's rubbery, it moulds itself to current political, uh, you know, hegemonic ideas. Obviously, for, for the Communist Party, the Great War was important only because it brought about the, the first signs of the crisis of imperialist capitalism. And th- therefore, it was an important prelude to a birth of Soviet Russia. So 1917 was everything in the 20s and 30s 14 to 17 is is barely spoken about at all it is all about getting the revolution commemorated in the right way then of course the great patriotic war comes along and that makes the first world War even more of an irrelevant nonsense i think what's really interesting in putin's russia is to see him try to rebuild the glory that was the romanovs you know the cultic status now of the Romanov remains. So in some way, so you know, he has done a lot to rehabilitate the First World War uh, in Russian history, but from a very particular point of view, as Russia as a major player in European affairs, not one to be taken lightly, that did its share of the fighting as well. So it's really interesting the way the is panned out in Russia.
0: For Arlen, too the Great War has posed complex challenges in terms of its legacy. During the conflict, the island was violently torn apart by civil war in the Easter Rising of 1916, leading in 1922 to the division that still exists today between the Irish Republic in the south, nationalist and Catholic, and in the north, loyalist Protestant Ulster.
1: For the Irish Republic, you know what becomes the Irish Republic. Uh, uh, of course, the idea to blow up is 1916, and the rising. That's the truly important date in the First World War, Ireland right, finding itself. But we have the anniversary of the song. 1916 could be portrayed, depending on what side of the border you were, as the symbol of a great commitment to the union um, and all the suffering that that entailed, or it was the moment when a new island began to emerge, one that had shaken off its chains, you know, of of serfdom, of Britain. And those narratives are being reinforced for many, many decades, and it also helps to create two highly simplistic, hermetically sealed containers, one of which contained rebellious, or shall we say, independent Catholic Irishmen, and one that contained loyal Protestant Northern Irishmen. Now, as we know of any historical process, nothing is is that clear-cut. And what we've seen during the centenary is a remarkable willingness on both sides of the border, of both sets of communities, to recognise the complexity of Ireland in the Great War, for for the Irish Republic to realise just how many of its men fought loyally for God, king, country and empire. They could still believe, after the war, in an independent island, but they didn't stop them fighting in the war effort. Also, for a lot of Protestant Northern Irishmen to realise that their relatives fought side by side with Catholic soldiers. So a shared history strikes me as being rediscovered, but also a shared and highly complicated history has emerged from the highly partisan, more simplistic ones of previous decades.
0: In more recent years, Ypres has attracted new battlefield tourists, among them many British schoolchildren studying the First World War for GCSE. But its interwar aura as a holy site of memory has long since morphed into the symbolism of peace and reconciliation, with European politicians and the surviving veterans of two world wars using Ypres as a platform to proclaim international friendship and an end to the traditional enmities of the past. Despite all this, the dominant British narrative of the Western Front remains stubbornly wedded to the idea that the First World War, much more than arguably the more catastrophic Second, must bear the burden placed upon it of representing the worst of our modern existential predicament.
1: There is a very strange of contradiction that's at the heart of many British people's thinking. There is this strange thing of a being intensely patriotic and proud, you know, this is Britain here, this is Britain at its best, it's represented in these 54,000 missing. That then sits with weeping over the idea that they were wasted and did it all for nothing. I think there is an element of kind of 1940 comes into in that sense of being proud to be alone. You know, that lots of British people seem to me stand at some of these memorials and cemeteries and act as if there are no allies, and even a vague sense of what the enemy is and who it, who it was. Also, totally taking it out of any kind of wider historical framework and seeing victimhood, seeing misery, seeing futility but, at the same time, intense patriotic pride and I find those really quite strange bedfellows.
0: I asked Mark finally, now that the last veterans and bereaved of the First World War are no longer alive, did he think that the British memory of the war could start to become less emotive and simplistic and more informed?
1: There's a bit of me that that remains sceptical about that. There is a deep attachment Mm or weight placed on what people feel. I feel this about something. Feelings are very big in our post stiff upper lip Britain rather than what you should think about something. And and I'm not going to exclude myself here because I took my wife and my children, and my dad and my brother, we went to our great grandfather's grave on the 100th anniversary of his death. I mean, he died, you know, ingloriously Spanish influenza, behind the lines in base hospital in October, 1918. And we were there on the centenary of his death and all of us were in tears. None of us have known him, none of us had any overlap with him. So he bears the surname Connolly, he's my relative. My intellectual side says to I me, mean, what am I crying about? What's more tragic here than any other grave? You know? Now we've lost living uh, participants, you know, major living players in the event. It strikes me, people almost feel as if it's a moral onus on them to become even more emotionally invested in it. So almost like they've imbibed the the ghost of all of that, you know, and and, and they're living it um, all the more. The emotional weight of it is going to retain, uh, and in fact perhaps it's even growing there because of the absence of direct memory. Well, the downside of that is maybe that it will stop us thinking about the hard history of it.
0: I've been talking to Mark Connolly, Professor of Modern British History at the University of Kent and co-author with Stefan Goebel of Ypres, a recent addition to the Great Battles series published by Oxford University Press. For further information about Mark or for other suggested reading on the topic of war and memory, please refer to my website, unknownwarriorspod.co.uk. Just click on the relevant links. This was the last episode in my exploration of what I've chosen to call the real First World War. I hope you've enjoyed the series, and I hope it's provided you with a better understanding of the rich complexity of the subject. I welcome thoughtful feedback. Plus de tristesse et j'aspire à l'instant précis où nous sommes.